Good evening. Thank you for being here. We're going to discuss some more Sri Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. And this evening we'll be covering that portion of the Paramatma Sandarbha that tells us that we are God. Uh, this section is, there's two Anachetas here that talk specifically about how we're alike, how Paramatma and I are and you, and every other jiva. <laughs> I caught myself, it's all right. Just <laughs> are the same. So this is Anacheta 40. The oneness of jiva and paramatma. Srila Jiva Goswami has written, Now the non-difference of the jiva and paramatma is shown for those who desire jnana, as paramatma told King Paranjan. Again, this is some pounding of the post here. He's covered these points, but now he's just going to provide some additional evidences and make sure that we've seen it from every angle of vision. So he quotes from the fourth canto, Paramatma told King Paranjan, I am you, and you are no other than me. Know distinctively that you are the same as I. The wise see not the least difference between us. The sense is clear. And that's the entire Anucheta. <laughs> so, the commentary. Cause and effect share a relation of difference as well as non-difference. Depending on the vision of a particular philosopher, one or the other standpoint is given predominance. Nayahikas, those are the logicians, consider an effect to be different from its cause. But Sankhya theorists adopt the opposite position. Therefore, both types of statements are found in the scriptures in relation to the Jiva and Paramatma. Adherence to the popular Gyanmarg, known as Advaitavad, and here he's saying, the Advaitavad here we're referring to as the radical non-dualistic ideal or absolute monism, meaning these are not Brahmavadis, but but they just they have a different concept, although they do take their ideas from Scripture, from the Veda. They have taken the interpretation of those scriptural statements according to Sankaracharya. And he, well, we would say in our common lingo today, he made it up as he went along, uh, so to speak. He didn't rely on, you know, like the, you know, the, the established conclusions of the day in regards to the Vedas. And he had a particular purpose in mind in that, Remember that he came, he, his advent was after that of Lord Buddha. Historically, there's some reference. The, the beginning point is the complete adherence to Vedic ritualistic, the ritualistic side of the Vedas. Let's do sacrifices so that we can enjoy. I mean, basically, a party atmosphere was applied to the Vedas. They did their sacrifices. They wanted to enjoy, and they gave. There was no adherence to the underlying un understanding. Is that yes? Use the Vedas to enjoy, but once you once you see that enjoy, you once you receive that enjoyable result from following the prescriptions of the Vedas, you should inquire further. Intelligent. Is there more? Does the, Veda, does the Veda have anything more to offer me than just getting a good wife or getting a good son or having wealth? Maybe, you know, so generally speaking, an intelligent person would say, well, I went to the, the King Veda and I made my offering, my sacrifice, and I chanted my mantras and lit the fire and the king was satisfied. And, well, actually, the Veda is more referred to as Mother. But still, so I made the offering to Mother Veda, and 
I got the beautiful wife, I got the good kid, I got the good job, I got the new car, you know, in our, I don't think they had cars back then, but they had airplanes. <laughs> Still the idea is there, but they didn't follow through, there wasn't that additional follow through, so they were only interested in the sacrifices. The sacrifices involve violence, generally. Generally there was, a, you know, the violent end of the sacrifice was there. Somebody had to pay for your enjoyment. And that's brought out in Vedic sacrifice. And you're whispering in that sacrificial animal's ear, today I'm taking your life, tomorrow you'll be taking mine. I understand that. And that's that's the understanding that we should have if we're going to live at the expense of others. That was going on. Lord Buddha invented. He said, forget these Vedas. Forget this. This is not, this violence is not the route to happiness, ultimate happiness. Give up this Vedic sacrifice and give up these Vedic rituals, this Vedic, the whole Vedic concept. Set that aside. Follow me. Adopt nonviolence and you'll be happier in life. That's okay, but he didn't have any spiritual end to what he was presenting to humanity. The spiritual end was ultimately give up everything and enter into nothing. It's a voidist philosophy. Now, over the ages, we see that Buddhism has changed and adopted and morphed into what societies wanted and those followers have adapted, you know, have adapted their philosophy so that there's there's more there than what was the original uh, prescriptions given by Lord Buddha. Just like any religion, it has to adapt to endure. That's human society. And, uh, you know, except for for us Gaudiya Vaishnavs, we're not, we're not going anywhere. We have uh, our ideal and no one's going to shake us from it. But anyway. Uh, if anyone's the exception to the rule, it's uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He came to throw the whole culture of spirituality on its head, and it, uh, there it's going to remain for his followers. So, along comes Sankaracharya into that culture. He knows, I mean, he's an incarnation of, of uh, Lord Shiva, and he's been instructed and his specific, in, his specific intent was, let me introduce, reintroduce to humanity at large an acceptance of what's presented in the Vedas. But I need to do it subtly. I need to do it, you know, what's the saying in like a... Right. So he, he needs to go into that culture and he needs to establish well the Vedas offer the same thing as the Buddhist but it's a little different conception. The conception is it's not void. You can actually enter into spiritual a spiritual blissfulness by giving up material ambition. So it, he couldn't really present the Vedas as they are, as it is. They couldn't, he couldn't present the Veda as it is. He had to present a modified version. He had to, as I said, kind of make it up as he went along in order to mold it into the culture that was predominated by the Buddhist mentality. So he did that. And that particular Advaita Vod, or that particular merging into Brahman, uh, is referred to by Satchin Das in this presentation. He calls it radical non-dualism. It's not true. There is a true non-dualism, which is you can enter into the Brahman aspect of the Supreme. But no, there's a Supreme. Know that, you know, you're entering into, you want to enter into God. Okay, 
Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavan Sabyate. If that's your ideal, it's available to you. But Sankara preached differently than the Vedic conclusion. He made it up. He gave his own interpretation to what was said in the Vedas. And in this presentation, it's being presented with the nomenclature radical non-dualism. It's, it, it's just radical. It doesn't, it, it's not, it doesn't fit the mold of what are the Vedic conclusions. So, adherence to the popular Gyanmarg, known as Advaitavad, radical non-dualism or absolute monism, aspire to realize their oneness with Brahman. They argue that the cause is real and that the effect is merely the cause appearing as effect. For them, the jiva is really Brahman, and so they interpret statements of non-difference in an absolute or primary sense. Sri Jiva does not subscribe to such a view, however, and offers an alternative explanation based on the oneness of cause and effect, while simultaneously accepting some difference between them. So we've discussed at, at nauseum, basically, what is this radical non-dualism, this misconception. And uh, I don't believe with this audience we need to go into it anymore. It's just anything, you know, their basic concept, and that's what's said here in so many words. They argue that the cause is real. So Brahman is real. And that the effect is merely the cause appearing as effect. That the cause, the effect of that real Brahman is still Brahman disguised as a material manifestation and separation of, our, of the jiva from Brahman, which it really is. So remove the ignorance that makes you think you're wrapped up in maya and realize the reality of your existence, which is Tatwamasi, you are that. You are Brahman. Simple. Accept that. There's no separation there. So remind, remove the ignorance. The ignorance is the only the only thing that's keep you in, you in material consciousness is your the ignorance of the fact that you're Brahman. That's radical non-dualism, basically in a nutshell. So Jiva doesn't accept that. We don't accept that. We follow Jiva goes on. According to Jiva, Sri Jiva, although there is an absolute oneness between God and the individual self, there is still a possibility of realizing an identity with Brahman by following the path of direct intuitive insight, Gyan Mark. This path is accepted by the Bhagavat Purana, but should not be confused with the Advaitavad of Sankar, which, as Jiva will show, finds no place in the scriptures. In Bhagavad Gita, fourth chapter, Krishna says that he reveals himself to every aspirant exact, exactly in accordance with the core disposition of their surrender or faith. He provides support to all by maintaining their respective faith. Therefore, he has both qualified personal and unqualified, impersonal features. His personal form, however, involves a higher degree of complexity and completion, implicitly enfolding the impersonal feature within it. The present verse is spoken, keeping the followers of the Gyan path in mind. He's adhering to those people that have that propensity, and that's that's why we have statements in scripture that seem to support the Brahman conception because there are aspirants who aspire for that. They want to enter into the supreme, giving up their distinctiveness. For them to be successful, they must have a touch of bhakti, they're not going to be successful without some bhakti. And therefore, Vishwanath 
has brought out the fact that they actually go through bhava bas. They do experience the pleasure of that little bit of bhakti that is required for them to ultimately attain their objective, their ideal of merging into the Supreme. It's not bhava in the not full bhava, it's a it's a it's a shadow of bhava because they don't want a personal relationship with the Supreme ultimately. So the bhava they experience is allows them to perform the bit of bhakti, just tasting that bhava, the bit of bhakti that's required to attain their goal. So there has to be a little bhakti. A little. We have to have some relation to, Krishna, to the Supreme Lord, to Krishna, to get whatever we want, even if we want to go away from a from a personal relationship with Him, or, or put that aside. So this is very nicely written here. The way the way the paragraphs constructed is 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 actually quite wonderful. That you know, there's qualified and there's unqualified, and and. And Krishna encompasses both. So the uh, it's a higher degree of complexity to know Krishna is much. There's a lot more involved. There's a lot more to him. You get to know a lot of stuff. Brahman, well, you know, it does. It, that's it's a very simple ma- manifestation of the same ideal, which is the spiritual energy of the absolute truth. But the complexity of Krishna gives you so much opportunity to taste different spiritual aspects. Whereas Brahman, well, it's really it the the whole definition of Brahman doesn't allow there to be any qualified subject. So you know there there can no not be a relationship of Ashraya and Vishaya. The the fact that there's the shelter of the of the of the qualities of Krishna which can appreciate him in all of the varieties that he manifests. So, and then that's another thing. Then we come into Vaishnava culture where we accept the Vishnu concept and the Vishnu concept is manifest in many forms. So the ideal can be many. There are worshippers of Ram, there are worshippers of, you know, Lakshmi Narayan, there are worshippers of Krishna in Dwarka, there are worshippers of Krishna and Vraj, and in the Krishna and Vraj worshippers, there's variety of, of associating with Krishna in friendship or fraternal affection or conjugal affection. So complexity is sometimes nice to have a little variety, <laughs> whereas do I, what do you do? I worship Brahman. I can sit and pull my senses in and just meditate on on the fact that I'm spiritual in nature. And my ultimate ideal is I will enter into the spirit and there'll be no variety there, but at least I won't be suffering. Well, okay. To tell you the truth, the blissfulness that the devotee gives and he experiences within the material realm far exceeds the Brahman concept. Even if he's suffering in devotion, he's happier than the Brahmavadi who's given up everything to do with the material. It's like the, the pleasure in a hoof print of a calf, they say, compared to an ocean of transcendental ecstasy that we can experience by expressing our devotion or our service to the Supreme. So, uh, we're happier here even than, than the Brahman. Who wants to enter into Brahman? I'd rather be here with Krishna's devotees and the Sangha and the deities and the Prashadam. I mean, no Prashadam in Brahman? Yeah, I'm not much interested in that myself. So, Sage Narada was instructing King Parchini Barhi through the allegory. In this narration, King Paranjan had been reborn as a woman and was mourning the death of her husband. The present verse was spoken to 
her, him, by Paramatma in the guise of a Brahmana. So Paranjan in the allegorical story as relayed by Narada has, has, has taken birth and is a woman and her husband has died and a Brahmana comes along and instructs her. And this particular verse is spoken by Krishna who was that Brahmana. He took the form of the Brahmana to instruct Paranjan in this allegorical story. So the verse he said was, I am you, and you are no other than me. I am you, and you are me. And we are all. <laughs> Amazing that, you know, <laughs> that, that really these kind of thoughts are coming to a songwriter in the 60s. And <laughs> Know decisively that you are the same as I. The wise see not the least difference between us. The present verse was spoken by him as Paramatma in the guise of a Brahmana boy. It should again be noted here that absolute oneness of the Jiva and Paramatma is impossible. If such identity were the actual situation, then there would be no need to instruct anyone in this matter. If we're Brahman, what who needs to tell us? We're the same as the Supreme. There's no distinctiveness between us and him or it or that vast, all-expansive spiritual energy. The very fact that Paramatma is instructing another individual about their oneness proves that there are di they are different, one liable to the covering of ignorance and the other not. So if all the jiva, you know, everybody within the material manifestation is is in ignorance, they're situated in ignorance and uh, liberation or self-realization involves removal of that ignorance, then how could I instruct you or you instruct me? Because ultimately we're the same. I am you and you are me and we are all together and, uh, you know. So, that's that Anucheta. Going on to the next Anucheta, which is the same um, basic point being made that we are the same as Paramatma. So, the Abeda, Abeda, I remember the word Beta and Abeda. I always say, well, what's Abeda? Abeda means alike. So, if you if you can relate those two, then you can remember the distinction of the two. At least I can, so that's my little trick. A beta means that we're like the Supreme, and beta means that we're different than the Supreme. So, the interdependence of cause and effect. Jiva Goswami continues in his 40, 41st Anucheta. Previously, in Anucheta 37, three reasons were given for statements describing the jiva and paramatma as non-different. So that Anucheta reads, there's three different points there. One, there is mutual interpenetration of energy and energetic. So that's why there's an unlikeness between ourselves and the paramatma aspect of the supreme, is because we're the energy and you can't really, the energy and the energetic source have a very close relation. Two, energy cannot exist without its energetic source. So, one, we cannot exist without the other, although the other could exist without us. But you can't really say that because it's part of the energy of the Supreme. This Tatasta Shakti is, it's a Shakti, so it's not going to ever be turned, it's not like it's going to be turned off. It's ever present as, a, as an energy as an aspect of the absolute truth. The Lord is eternal and all of his shaktis are eternal. They may come or go, he may manifest them or not, but the potentiality never leaves. So the Tatasta never leaves in that regard. And the third of those three um, reasons, energy and energetic are non-distinct from the point of view that both are of the nature of consciousness. So these three specific reasons were given 
and the 37th Anicheta. As to the non-difference between ourselves and Paramatma. So now Jiva is elaborating. He's pulling that apart. He's unfluffing it a little bit and saying, okay, let's look more deeply. So we have the last Anicheta. Now he goes on to this one. Uh, according to the principle enunciated here, the first of these suggests that from the intent to speak of the mutual interdependentation of all the phenomenal evolutes, tattvas, of primordial nature as a whole, this oneness or identity is apparently seen to be the cause. Similarly, from the wish to express that the energy known as the jiva interpenetrates its energetic source, Paramatma, the reason for upholding their identity can be denoted. To this end, when Bhagavad Krishna speaks the following verse, and then Jiva quotes a verse from the 11th uh, canto in his discussion with Uddhava, because all the evolutes adhere in each other, O best of men, the order in which they are enumerated is undertaken according to the intention of the speaker. It seems like what's going on here What this doesn't fit together. So now he'll go on and he'll explain what he means here and what we're going to be discussing in the, as we go in deeper into this Anucheta is the fact that Different, different places in the scripture, the Sankhya philosophy is described according to different numbering systems. Some say there's 26 elements, some say there's 27, which is right, which is wrong. And what Krishna is saying in this verse is because all the evolutes adhere in each other, O best of men, the order what's evolved in order to manifest the material creation. So that Sankhya philosophy is that philosophy of the material elements and their causes. So some people number the cause and effect together and some people number them separately. Some look upon a, an effect as, the, as equivalent to its cause, and some make a distinction. So therefore, you'll find a different counting system in the Sankhya philosophy according to how it's presented or the intent of, of who's ever speaking of it. Swami also comments, here, of course, he's talking of Sridhar Swami. Swami comments. So he's look, looked here. Jiva's quoting. This is Sridhar Swami's commentary on this verse. So Sridhar Swami says, Since the evolutes interpenetrate one another, there are, they are enumerated either as less in number, Purva, or as more, Apara, in accordance with the intent of the speaker. So this will be carried on, this discussion, through this and the next Anucheta, where we'll kind of unpack these different uh, philosophical approaches and what really, the intent here is simply to show that there is a proper way to look at the Sankhya philosophy and the proper way and the, the, the ultimate proper way would see a distinctive and number Paramatma and Jiva separately. That would be the ultimate bhakti presentation of the Sankhya philosophy. But for the jnani, there may be only 26 because Jiva and Paramatma are counted as one. The source and the energy emanating from the source are, in essence, the same. After stating, this is the commentary in the previous Anucheta, that the scriptural de declarations of oneness are meant for those pursuing Yan Marg, in this and the next Anucheta, Sri Jiva elaborates 
of the three reasons given in section 37 to account for the affirmations of non-difference. First of these arguments is that the jiva and paramatma inhere in one another, and so can be counted either as one or as distinct according to the intent of the speaker. In the Indian schools of philosophy and theology, which are called darshans, different seers have attempted to explain reality by positing different numbers of tattvas, or ontological categories of being. Sankhya is probably the most popular system for such enumeration of the tattvas. It is one of the oldest philosophical schools, and there have been many different acharyas of Sankhya, each of whom has explained the system slightly differently, proposing various numbers of tattvas. It's kind of a it's a complex subject. How did the material universe evolve? It's an interesting subject. And philosophers, of course, approach it and try to give a reasonable explanation. And in Indian philosophy, the different darshans that adhere, there are six darshans that adhere to the Vedas as their evidence. They support their philosophical viewpoints based on statements, scriptural statements, something, some, you know, some statement from the Upanishads or the different, you know, the different, uh, the different Vedas, the Upanishadic statements, the Samhitas, even the Puranas. So they'll use this as the evidence to support what they're saying. So one of those schools is Sankhya. Sankhya deals with how did it happen? How did it evolve? What came from what? In what order? And the Bhagavatam, of course, has their presentation of Sankhya philosophy. And their, that presentation was spoken by Lord Kapila to his mother Devahuti. So that's the conclusion that we adhere to as Gaudiya Vaishnavs and followers of the Bhagavatam, the Bhagavat Purana, as the brilliant gem, the center upon which all spiritual conclusions can be resolved. So we accept that. There's also an atheistic Kapila, which is also, he's also given and used the Sankhya philosophy as the basis for his determination. So there's an atheist Kapila and there's a theist Kapila. And they both use Sankhya as the core of their explanation for the evolution of a material creation. Sankhya is probably the most popular system for such enumeration of the tattvas. Here, tattvas mean the different, the different aspects of the material manifestation. So in the Sankhya philosophy, it taught the, the nomenclature tattvas applied to that. What are the gross elements, the subtle elements, the sense objects, the, um, the senses, both subtle, both knowledge acquiring and, and uh, um, what do we want to say, active, active senses in the body. In the third canto, chapter 26, Bhagavan Kapila enumerates 27 tattvas, whereas in chapter 13 of the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan Sri Krishna mentions only 26. Contrastingly, in a verse, Srimad Bhagavatam 11, 19, 14, from an earlier part of the same discussion that is continued in this Anucheta, Krishna lists 28 tattvas. Krishna's discussion with Arjuna, he gave 13 tattvas. And then he discussed with Uddhava, and he increased it up to 28. 13 in Gita? Or yes. 26? Just 13. 13. 26 according to Lord Kapila in the, in the Bhagavatam. Mm -hmm. 13 according to Krishna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra. And 28 according to Krishna in his discussions with Uddhava uh, in the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam. Keeping all this in mind, Uddhava asked Sri Krishna about the number of tattvas or evolutes, manifesting from Prakriti. 
he inquires as to why different sages have proposed different enumerations. Bhagavan Krishna speaks the present verse, 11.22.7, as part of his response. So that was the, the primary Bhagavatam verse in this Anucheda. Because all the evolutes in here, in each other, they come from, they basically from the way Lord Kapila explains it, one comes out of the other, it comes out of the other. So first you have the subtle, and then you have the, first you have, well, yeah, first you, Tan Mantra, you have the, the sound, and then to pick up the sound you need to hear sound, so you have the sense of sound, and then you have the, the gross body, which is the seat of an ear, which can perceive the sound, and, you know, the whole evolution of the, of, uh, in the very beginning, there's, there's simply the, from the, for the gross elements, there's the, the ether aspect, which carries the sound, and then if we add more than the sound, the next sense perception is, is, uh, that of, uh, of sight, I believe. So, for the sight, we add another aspect, and so the 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 next element is fire, and fire contains sound and light. And uh, I should have read it all, you know, before I came here. I and remi reminded myself. It's quite interesting the way it's presented in the Bhagavatam, and then you have the next aspect. So, sound, sight, smelling. You know, it's carried. Maybe that may be the second one. So, touch, air. air, touch. So, yeah, it's all there. And the earth has contains them all, and it has scent. Now you add being able to smell. So, it's an interesting philosophy, Sankhya philosophy. It's a way to look at the evolution. Well, you could say, Brahma just sprinkled everything out there, and it's, you know, but. You know, the, you want to you want to get from the unmanifest nature of the Lord to the manifest late nature. You want to see how Pradhan, that initial unmanifest or Mahatattva, unmanifested material conglomerate of of energy of the Lord. How did it turn into this much variety, and how does it all how's it all fit together? And Sankhya is a way to look at that. According to the Satkarya Vad theory of the Sankhya school, an effect inheres, its, inheres in its cause. By this principle, the number of elements can be estimated as greater or lessing depending on the speaker's intent, either to count an evolute separately or as included with its cause. We went over that. Sri Jiva refers to this principle to show the oneness of the Jiva with Paramatma the lesser counting of the elements, 26, where Jiva and Paramatma are considered as one. So, therefore, the scripture supports the concept of the oneness. Such statements are made for the followers of the Gyan path who aspire to realize the Brahman aspect of the Absolute. Jiva Goswami continues in the 40. Second Anucheda to bring to a close uh, the aspects of oneness. So this 42nd Anucheda proceeds as follows. Thereafter, Bhagavan Krishna expounds the unity of the two, the Jiva and Paramatma, by virtue of their inseparability as Shakti and Shaktiman as well as due to their non-distinction in regards to their conscious nature. They're both conscious. So that's really the distinguishing factor of the likeness, that the third of those three factors. And what's that mean? That all the material aspects of, a ma of the material manifestation they're inert. They do not have consciousness. Although sometimes, as we said and discussed, it certainly seems like they do. So a, 
an additional verse is quoted from Uddhava's discussion with Krishna. And it goes as follows. There's not even a, a, a minute dissimilarity between the jiva and paramatma here in this body. To imagine that they are distinct from one another is meaningless. Moreover, yon too is an intrinsic quality, guna, of primordial nature. It is of the nature of sattva. So, in this verse, a likeness is uh, emphasized. And it's emphasized in, in two matters. First is, there's really no difference between the, the jivatma and the paramatma that reside within the body. They're alike. Why? Because they're both conscious. Whereas everything else in the body is unconscious. And Krishna goes on, knowledge itself, jnana, is an intrinsic quality, guna, of primordial nature. I, the, the gunas were goodness, passion, and ignorance. But here's Krishna saying, well, knowledge is, we can't separate sattva, the mode of goodness, from knowledge. They're the same. So here, those adherents to the Gyan Marg, who seek as their ideal, Brahman, are placated in the scriptures in their understanding. Now as we go on, the next Anocheta, the Bhaktis will be placated by other verses from the scripture and other perspectives of the same absolute truth. Vedanti tat tat vavidas tat vavyaj jnanam advayam that non-dual absolute can be viewed as dual or non-dual really brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavan iti subjate depending on your angle of vision. Sridhar Swami now Jiva quotes Sridhar's comments on this particular Bhagavatam verse. Sridhar Swami says, Sri Krishna speaks this verse in response to the question of why there is a theory of 25 ontological categories. Okay, I guess Sridhar Swami looks at the count a little different. <laughs> and that's a fact. Different acharyas bring out different things according to different understandings. They're talking about the same thing. So we can be content with that at heart. There is no dissimilarity between the jiva and paramatma because both are conscious by nature. Therefore, to consider them as absolutely distinct is meaningless. That's what's being stressed here. Here, by virtue of their similarity and non-distinction, their intrinsic relation as potency, shakti, and potent, shaktiman, is also shown. By doing so, their inseparability of yatrikya, trika, is also made evident. The commentary. But before we go to the commentary, I want to give you the 26 tattvas. So the 26 tattvas are first the five gross elements. So there's four groups of five. The four... Five gross elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether. Then there's the tan mantras. Tan mantras are the sense objects in their, in their form whereby they can be perceived by the senses. So those tan mantras, of course, are sound, smell, taste, touch, and sight. Not, not the senses that, but the what is perceived. So that's the Tan Mantra, is what is perceived. The, the sound itself. So, not the hearing, not the, 
not the hearing of the sound. It is the sound. So that's the second of the five. And those five, as we explained in Sankhya, can be directly tied to the evolution of the elements. So in earth you have scent. So in fire you have shape. And in earth you have all of them. And, in, you know, so it's a whole, a whole philosophy there. You can go to the Bhagavatam of Sankhya teachings of Lord Kapila if you want to delve into that. Um, then, well, we have to have, the, the living entity has to be able to perceive those, those things, to be able to, you know, perceive what's seeable and to perceive what's hearable and to perceive what's smellable. So we have the five knowledge acquiring senses. So those knowledge acquiring senses, the ear, the eyes, the nose, uh, the tongue, and the touch, those directly correspond to the Tan Mantras. So they, they are those instruments whereby those things can be perceived which have evolved from the gross elements. So we're going to subtler. Now we're up to the jivas having senses. And then the jiva also has to get around. So in order to get around, for I to get around, and you to get around, we all to get around, <laughs> uh, then we have to have working senses. We have to be able to, uh, to, to grab things and to walk from one place to another, and to consume things, to be able to talk. So those are the other five. The, they're called the working senses to evacuate, you know, to use the uh, built-in garbage disposal system that we have. <laughs> so these are the working senses. And we have to procreate. So that's also a working sense. Don't want to forget that one. <laughs> or none of us would have been here in the first place. So then we go to Three other items, mind, intelligence, and false ego. So we're up to 23. Now, 23, then we come to the way the unmanifested Prakriti is looked at as a combination of all that together. So the Mahat. So when you when you put all those other things together in one, one concept before manifestation, that's referred to as Mahat or Prakriti. So now we're at 24. If we count Paramatma and Jiva as one, as the effect is within the cause. We have 25 tattvas and as we, if we separate them, we have 26 tattvas. There is maybe 27 if you want to look at the unmanifest as a conglomerate with or without the jivas. You could put them with or without the material elements is one unmanifested mahat and the, the jivatmas are separate, a separate unmanifested thing together before the material creation. So Sankhya philosophy looks at these differently. It's apparent from the way it's discussed that Krishna in talking to Arjuna in the battlefield giving only 13 was looking at them as the effect was in the cause and not counting the effect separately because he only came up with 13. So in that regards, earth, water, fire, air would have in them the Tan Mantras and, and the sense objects. So there's only 13. Anyway, we'd have to go to the Gita and see exactly what Krishna mentions in that part of the Gita where he discusses it and get up to that count. But mind, intelligence, false ego, and the material elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, false ego, five others, where he 
what the other five are. The jiva himself, a separate paramatma, seven, thirteen, five. He must be adding the the subtle gross or the uh, the knowledge acquiring senses. Perhaps I don't want to speculate. We could go to the Gita and find out, but we can see how it's arrived at there. So we will continue in our next discussion. We'll finish up with anything here that we did not cover that's in the commentary. And next discussion, we will go on to how we are not God. <laughs> there are there any questions? A question from the last class. Because I talked to you and I thought I finally really understood it. And then Bhakti Ross and John McDonnie and I were talking in the kitchen. We were thoroughly confused. And okay. So the. The um, my mind just went by the conglomeration of all the Jews mm -hmm. in the material realm. Mm -hmm. Now it could be either in each universe or whatever. What's the reason for it, or what? What do you? What's the well, confusion? We're just trying to figure out. So there's that, and then it's a conception. You could conceive yourself also as all. You could conceive of yourself as all the jivas, so there is a. If you take that position, I'm like all the jivas. That's the Haranya Garbha conception. All the jivas together in one. It's not a literal thing. It's, it's not a like conception. No, there's not a. Con yeah, no. The closest that you'll get to that is they're all considered unmanifest within the stem arising from the lotus of Garbodakshai Vishnu. Garbodakshai Vishnu is sitting there and all the jivas are in him. And then he sprouts a lotus and Brahma takes birth and creates a universe and they come out and fill up that universe from Garbodakshai Vishnu. If we look at them all together, they're called Haranya Garba. When they come out separately, we look at them as jiva. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But Haranyagarbha can have personality or consciousness of it. You can have somebody. You can have the concept of, of. That's basically what. Where? Where would? Where have we seen any place in scripture? I haven't. Where this person with this conception of being the conglomerate of all jivas is takes a form and, and performs some 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 function right. or it interacts in some leela with some other uh, manifestation of the supreme i haven't come across that so for me it's a conception where you could where you have the ideal that before the individuated jivas manifest in a universe before that individualization, mm -hmm. they can be looked at all together as one personality. Mm -hmm. And that way of looking at them together is called Haranyagarbha. Thank you so much for your association. Thank you.